The length that we went through to solve this problem baffles me to this day. Like it's one of those problems that you're just like, I can't believe we missed that. Like everything's hard about this in coding or even in just writing when you're so focused on the goal that you can repeatedly read over errors. You feel like you've read something line by line, but you've elided what's wrong with it every single time. If we succeed, we'll be the first commercial company to ever go out to deep space. I'm Brett Gibson, and welcome to HiBit, a new podcast where we do deep dives on the art of problem solving with engineers and technical experts from our community of early stage startups. In today's episode, we're sitting down with Jose Akane, Astroforge co-founder and CTO. Astroforge is an asteroid mining company. We dive into the holy shit moment when a space launch does not go according to plan. A high bit is the most significant part of the binary representation of a number. In coder jargon, it commonly refers to the most important thing you need to understand in a given context. I chose to name this podcast High Bit because when faced with engineering problems, the first task is often figuring out which part of the problem most affects the outcome you're driving towards. Join me on this journey as we discuss thorny engineering problems with my guests and get into the weeds about how they solve them. Hey, Jose, thanks a lot for for joining today. I'm really hey, excited Brett. to talk about you know, what you're working on at Astroforge. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Astroforge is, in short, um, asteroid mining. We're making critical resources available for use on Earth by going after asteroid mining. And so when, where are you in that process? Are you already sending rockets into space? Yeah, we actually successfully launched our first uh, satellite into orbit. And this is the first in-space refinery ever to be launched. And we're doing demonstrations and testing on that now. So that's that's where we're at currently in planning for our, our first deep space mission. We will have been the first commercial company to go ever go out to deep space as of uh, October of this year. Wow, that's amazing. I think we're going to talk about something hard that uh, you ran into along the way. Like everything's hard about this. So maybe you can like set the stage about like, you know, what are the, what are the cutting edge technologies that go into sending a rocket into space and refining asteroids? Our key technology, what we're really developing here at Astroforge is um, the ore processing system and, and really the refinery, right? So that processing system has to take in regolith, asteroid regolith from the surface, um, input it into a refinery. And this refinery um, extracts platinum group metals from this raw material. And then um, on the output of that goes into a reentry capsule. So that capsule um, goes back to Earth, lands, and, and we sell it uh back for use here on Earth. I'm struck that refining ore and rocketry are, are fairly uh, divergent domains. So perhaps you could talk about what is your expertise in and how did you end up uh, tackling this problem? My first foray into aerospace, uh, I worked at NASA Ames. So I worked on a number of CubeSat missions going out to low Earth orbit and a couple of uh, initial trade studies for uh, spacecraft going to uh, cislunar and, and beyond. It was a really amazing opportunity um, but it was also a, a bit discouraging, right? So some of these projects that I worked on, people have spent years, like decades on these things. And, and you demonstrate this hoping to get a flight out. Back then, you know, flights to space were few and far in between. They're very expensive. So some of these programs got canceled. Um, and you would just see the faces of, of your coworkers and see them just kind of defeated. Um, after all this hard work, they don't get to see this thing fly. And that was very discouraging to me. Um, and I thought, you know, as much as I, I wanted to continue on working in space, I, I didn't want to spend 
decades of my life working on something and not seeing it actually do the thing that it was meant to do. So I, I, I actually left airspace. I was like, this is not, this is not for me. I'm a robotics guy. I definitely love seeing things in action and actually seeing it working. Um, so I moved into autonomous vehicles. So I worked in the Volkswagen Electronic Research Lab, uh, working on uh, autonomous parking and self-driving cars. We built uh, an autonomous Pikes Peak racer. It ran that r- race course, and it was amazing. But then I got an opportunity to work at a burgeoning launch vehicle startup called SpaceX. I was the deputy chief engineer under Hans Koenigsmann. He taught me a lot about rockets and spacecraft. And then I moved into Dragon Avionics. So actually assembling the vehicle, the electronic components of the vehicle, and then operating that vehicle um, as as it made its way into uh, docking with the ISS. So, you know, space mining is very different than the current terrestrial mining because the the processes that are used here in the terrestrial world are, are definitely, are not applicable um, to space. As far as my, my experience and background, it lends itself to this asteroid mining venture, mainly because we have to make this refinery space qualified, right? We have to build essentially a spacecraft. So my, my experience uh, really lends itself to um, working on this problem. How do you approach figuring out refining? Where did you start? Like, who did you talk to? Like, how did you become an expert in that as well? You, you typically start out with analyzing what the current solutions are. You know, the current mining solutions use, uh, take advantage of gravity, uh, reactants, reagents, um, and, and pool, big pools of, of material um, and leaching. And th- these things obviously cannot, we can't really take advantage of that in space. Uh, it's a much harder problem. So it, it's really starting from scratch, right? So we had to look into ways of um, separating material only using electricity. Um, and only and and working in a high vacuum environment. And that was the, that was really the the two main requirements um, that we had to work with us because in space there's not you know you, you have vacuum for free um, and all you have is uh, battery power as of now you know the people working on nuclear but right now you know solar power batteries great like let's start there. We read some research papers and we actually contacted one of the authors uh, of these papers that were that did build a high vacuum purely electrical system that separated elements. Um, and that was really the start of the design of our refinery that um, that we built. Um, working with him and understanding the physics behind this refinery, how it worked, um, how we can um, optimize it to work in space, and how we can miniaturize it such that it's not a large system. Because on here, it's a very large, on Earth, it's a very large system to use. And that's mainly because you have to generate such a high vacuum. For space, you get you get that for free. Um, so I think that was the, really the starting off point um, for this company as far as the refinery goes. Yeah, that's really interesting, sort of leaning into the advantages of the environment as much as trying trying to innovate on what you can do. Could you talk about how you met your co-founder and how you decided to work on them? Uh, it's funny, my co-founder and I had very, uh, we had very parallel lives. He worked in the space industry in a launch company called Virgin Orbit. He left that company um, and, you know, I think he was just, he was, wanted to, to, to do something other than space. He was kind of burnt out, right? So around the same time, I was, I was done with SpaceX and, and was wanting something different, something more. And we met at a company called Bird Rides. Um, and that was, we realized we had a lot of the same friends. Um, and <laughs> As apart from space. <laughs> yeah, and, but it was a very odd, weird meeting point at a scooter yeah. company working on software. And scooters, but you know that really reignited um, both of our passions for space. Um, I think when we were working at res- our respective companies before, 
we kind of lost sight of that. And and after talking with him about you know his his passions and and, and in space and exploration and pushing boundaries further and helping humanity out and and doing good with what what our background is and 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 also what our passions are, kind of lent itself to the the start of Astroforge. Um, so that that's really where where it started. Well, all right. So you know, as you know, like to talk about hard engineering problem that you came across sure. while building Astroforge. So maybe you can just start by introducing what what came to mind when I asked you the question, what what problem came up that, that would be interesting to dive into? My first thought when I saw the question of like, what is the hard problem? And, and I, I laughed when I read it because asteroid mining is the hard problem, <laughs> right? So like, I really, where do we go from here? Yeah. <laughs> just talk about the company. But the problem that I that I eventually came to was a um, a simple problem to solve, but a hard problem to troubleshoot given the schedule um, and the task at hand. It's a mix of complexity, but an elegant solution. Though I am embarrassed to say what the solution <laughs> is, um, but y- y- you'll hear it soon. <laughs> so perhaps set the stage. You know, what stage of the company was this? How long ago? Who was working on this with you? Three, about three months ago. Like I said earlier, our main tech is building up this refinery. Um, and we successfully launched that refinery um, uh, in the space, and, and we're getting data now from it and, and analyzing that. So that's really awesome. Um, but that main tech that we're building is this refinery. So it is a payload that um, takes in that material, uh, an asteroid-like sample, and it extracts platinum from it. So uh, we have this payload. Obviously, it can't fly by itself because it doesn't, you know, it needs power, it needs the comm systems, it needs antennas and solar solar arrays. So we have to integrate this refinery into a spacecraft, into a satellite. Um, that satellite portion of it is something that we purchased. Um, so at this stage, we were just testing the refinery payload, the final uh, flight integration of this payload before we integrate it onto the, onto the actual satellite bus, the satellite vehicle. I guess real quick, in space, in space terminology, payload is what you're, what you're setting up on the rocket. It's just let's define sure. that term. Yeah, so the rocket is, is what... Uh, what carries the satellite into orbit? Uh, the satellite bus is is just the uh, is is the power and the communication system and the attitude control system to point the spacecraft in uh, towards Earth in order to communicate or towards wherever. Right, the payload itself sits inside or on the satellite bus, and that is that is the either the scientific equipment, the cameras, if you're Earth observing. In our case, the payload is the refinery. Um, so what we developed for this mission was the the payload, which was the refinery. Um, and our external vendor uh, created the satellite bus, which was the power and the communication system. And SpaceX was the launch, the rocket provider. So those are the, the three big pieces um, um, when it comes to like the, the operations. <laughs> the, three, the three big pieces of refining <laughs> space. Cool. All right. So maybe you could repeat what you said about who was working on the problem with you. One of our integration test engineers and myself, uh, we're doing the final testing of this, this refinery payload before we integrate it onto the satellite bus. Um, and those checkouts went great. And and let me take a step back. The refinery consists of three subsystems. So there's a vaporization subsystem, which vaporizes the material that's uh, that's in the in the refinery. Um, then there's the uh, there's the ionization, which positively charges the these vapors. So we shoot it with a very high energy source. In our case, it's a microwave. Um, and once it's ionized, we accelerate it towards uh, a target plate, 
um, and we stored it over a mass spec. So we we take the uh, elemental properties and, and leverage them. So um, iron in this case is magnetic. So we we have these uh, very um, high powered magnets that 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 curve the the iron away, and then the the platinum is what what stays and, and collects on that target plate. So those are the three systems: it's the the, the vaporization, ionization, and then the collection. Everything was working; it was great. Uh, we generated the plasma. The plasma is when it's ionized, and we saw feedback from telemetry saying, like, yes, we've actually depositing material onto this plate. So great. Now we can move forward and integrate it onto the satellite bus. And that's amazing. So we did that. And once we did that, we did another check just to make sure that we didn't mess anything up. And that's the point of failure. So we sat there going, this is confusing. We literally just turned this thing on. And afterwards, it did not work. The, the potential number of root causes or, or causes for that problem is very minimal, right? Like you just moved it from one place to another, bolted down, tightened some bolts, <laughs> plugged into some connectors. There's really not much it can go wrong, right? So what we did was, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a fishbone diagram. No. Um, a fishbone diagram is is kind of what's, is a way to collect root co- or, or causes of a problem. Um, so you start with like the high level subsystems and within that, the failure cases within those high level mm-hmm. subsystems. Mm-hmm. And then you select, which is, you know, you kind of validate each one, right? Um, so we, we, we split it up into those three subsystems that I talked about earlier. Um, and and there's an extra subsystem called the ground support equipment, which provides the power um, to to either the payload or the satellite bus to do the testing. Because you don't want to lever, you don't want to use the internal batteries. Um, you want to make sure that you know those are really safe for flight. So um, those are the, the kind of the four main fish bones uh, we, where we dug into, uh, and oh. we split that up and triage Wait, that. Is this a and this is a common technique you've used many times in the past. Is it? You we, know, I, yeah, we've we've used this, but typically, typically you have a big long review and you say, okay, yeah. great, let's write down all this. For us, it was okay, great. We understand what the fishbone diagram is. Let's yeah. just let's real time solve this and let's triage yeah. this real time. The high level intuition for this diagram is let's isolate parts of the system so that we can know exactly what we're testing at any given moment. Yeah, you isolate parts of the system. And then you you write down how that system could fail, given the circumstances of which the, the failure happened. And so, so stepping back a second, like the interesting point is they just weren't sure if they could solve a problem. Whereas here, you know, you 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 thought you had it solved and you kind of ran into a wall where suddenly it wasn't. Maybe talk a little bit about just your first reaction. Was this part of the process? Were you in a li- little bit of disbelief? What was uh, the first thing that came to mind when, when this jumped up? <laughs> Because it was so late in the schedule and we had to deliver this and integrate it and, and get it onto the, ro- the rocket in order to launch, uh, my first my first thought was, I, I'm, holy shit, right? Like, I don't know <laughs> if you have to bleep that for the podcast. Yeah, but, yeah. But, had, had you taken this step for granted? Uh, taken what like, steps? Like, like had, you, had you taken success at that step in the process for granted previously? Yeah. Or you just yeah. assumed? Okay. Yeah, you just you just assumed it was just going to work, right? So it was, it was a, holy shit. Um, but I think, you know, my p- experiences in the past with SpaceX really lent itself to quickly removing the holy shit moment and moving into <laughs> Yeah. I think yeah. the more, exp- the more holy shit moments you have, <laughs> the faster, the faster <laughs> you have, uh, after you have. So it was a short moment, but it was like, yeah, oh my gosh. You're a nerd. Holy shit. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So back to the fishbone diagram, like what, you know, how did you proceed and what, what was born out of that process? 
So, so we had we had a let's go ahead and fishbowl this and, and not have a formal review, but let's let's figure out great here are the subsystems what can fail, um, and we split that um, up amongst our team, right? So, uh, the hardware team took on kind of checking the um, the external the actual circuitry, the electronics and the mechanical portion of it to see if something has happened. The integration team took on the vaporization portion and and did that check, and then the science the R and D team the science team took on kind of the um, the microwave ionization portion of it, um, and I took on, or and and the integration team also took on the ground support equipment, and they kind of triaged uh, that way, right? So everyone checked their subsystems, uh, it was good. We're like, okay, what what is what is still happening here? Um, so the ionization guy, the science guys checked the microwave system. They checked the the forward power versus the reflected power to make sure, okay, is this actually generating the enough power for us to to actually ionize these vapors and yeah great standalone by itself it was that component was working um the vaporization we stuck in a vacuum chamber we vaporized the material is that vapor throughput uh what we expect and yeah we were seeing vapors the throughput was was great um the current was what we expected amazing the target plate the collection plate was doing exactly what it was the it was negatively biased the only thing left was the ground support equipment and that was the first thing we checked. Let's check the actual voltages coming out of this, this like power supply. It was like, okay, cool. The power supply is giving us 12 volts, what we would expect. Um, but the thing that we took for granted um, was that in, that in that installation from the payload to the vehicle, the harnessing also changed. Wait, sorry, what is the harnessing? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a set of wires with connectors on each end to plug into... Um, the satellite or the payload into uh, uh, ground support, <laughs> so to a computer. So basically, the data and the power go through the these, this harnessing. Um, so we had one set of harnessing that <laughs> that we used before we installed it into the vehicle, and that was great. And then we had another set of harnessing um, that attaches directly to the satellite, um, and that that is the part that we didn't check. We took that for granted, right? We just assumed the harnesses. We made the harnesses as expected. Okay. Um, the problem was that the harnessing, the, the harnessing that we plugged into the flight unit was a little bit longer. Um, and there was actually a significant power drop, um, from the power supply into the input of the vehicle, um, into the input of the payload. Wait, how, how much is a little bit longer? It's <laughs> by a little bit longer. This was like, <laughs> like a yard or like, <laughs> yeah, this, this was like, I would say probably, uh, I don't know. 50 to 100 feet longer <laughs> oh wow um, okay but have... we didn't expect we didn't expect that big of a drop um yeah. and, it, and it wasn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily the length it was actually the um um the pass-throughs that we used and the pass-throughs okay. were a very big gauge pass-through so it took it was a very big drop in voltage so our spacecraft was expecting our, our payload was expecting 12 volts what it was actually getting uh was more like eight seven seven eight volts and that was just underneath uh the our dc to dc converter um that that is used for our ionization and, system. and you had tested the voltage going into the harness but not coming out of it so we unplugged the harness from yeah. the pass-through and we checked it and we said that's 12 volts and we took for granted we're like it's a pass-through like that's not yeah it works we've seen it like we can we can see the system turning on and just because the system's turning on doesn't mean that you're actually getting the nominal voltage. You can still be 
you can still have a system turn on and, and it's barely it, and it's yeah. in a state where it's not working right it's not nominal operation were you aware of the variance in harnesses you know like was this even on your radar as like something yeah. you should have known about and yeah the, the variance in harnessing for sure i was aware of but that that was not it was not a significant enough length like we i'm used to dealing yeah. you know big drops typically happens with you know launch rockets in at least really long like thousands it would be yeah. like very very large largest lengths right so yeah, we were definitely aware of it. The, it was the, um, the, I think the really the main thing was the pass through, yeah. but we just took it for granted that okay, great, you know, we just we kind of glazed over it because we did a simple check, and then we really focused in on the hard part, right? The hard part was the refinery, so that's yeah. where we thought that yeah, yeah, because that's this is this is the novel technology yeah. that we're gonna yeah. fail where there is the new tech that we've built up <clears throat> and not the simple tech that's a power supply where we just turn it on. Or a set of wires where you just, yeah. you know, like put it together. And, I mean, and, I laugh because, like, how many, I feel like around the house, like, thinking things are broken and finding out it's the cord is, like, a pretty common. What happened? <laughs> you like checking your circuit breaker? breaker. Um, but, I mean, you could say more about that. I think that <laughs> what's really interesting there is that you were very deep on a hard problem so your intuition about what was wrong perhaps was centered around what was difficult previously is that is that accurate is that where your head went to immediately like what what did your what was your gut reaction of what was probably broken yeah i mean that was absolutely the gut reaction the gut reaction was this is a difficult problem asteroid mining is difficult the refinery is difficult it couldn't be the cord it couldn't be the cord it couldn't be it couldn't be the simple pass-through um, and and to be fair, we did check that. That was the first check we did. Hey man, is the power su- is the ground support equipment yeah. on? Okay, yeah, duh. Like the, the engineer looks at me like, of course it's on. Like, what do you think I am? <laughs> Why would I want to turn it We're like, okay, great. Let's just check the just, just let's just check the output of that. Like, yeah, no, that was fine. Um, it was really this pass through that lent itself to uh, a, a bigger drop, right? That's amazing. Was, and then, so how did everyone react? Was this like a you know like a two minute fix once once you figured it out? I mean, the fix was, yeah, it was, it was seconds. <laughs> like, just, okay, it wasn't seconds, but it was within five minutes. You just took out the pass-through, found a different one with a uh, lower gauge, and, and it was fine. Like, a, um, So there wasn't a significant drop. We just changed out the pass-through, essentially, um, and done. The The length that we went through to, to solve this problem was baffles me to this day. Like, It's one of those <laughs> problems that you're just like, I can't believe we missed that. Um, and I think it, it really is exactly what you said. You're focusing on this problem that's difficult. And, and the second thing is um, glazing over something so simple. And, and I talk about this fishbone diagram because these are things that you should really actually check. You should write down, like, great, the grass support equipment, do we check everything in there? And not just say, like, yeah, I checked the voltage, which is just one part of it. Um, and we just checked it off, like, okay, cool. Power supply works, harness works, great. Um, so it was it was a... It was a perfect storm. It was a fast schedule. The 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 actual payload itself was complicated, and and yeah, and you had high emotions running right with the with the team. Were you under time pressure to get this done? We had a very minimal margin um, to get this on the rocket, so um, we we were right up to time um, to integrate this vehicle to 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 the actual SpaceX rocket. So, but yeah, we were absolutely. This was this is one of those things that like okay great make or break let's go <laughs> yeah 
And this is a context where, given the novelty of all these components and what you're building, there wasn't, there's not like a resource to go to or someone to call. It was just sit down and test every single assumption about how this works and and what might be going on. Yeah, exactly. Like, who do you, it's great because with rockets, right? Like, there's a baseline. You understand that rockets are are, are a thing. They've been a thing <laughs> since, since the days of of, of Apollo and, and um, the Mercury parade. Like, we know that. This is a novel technology that's never been built. I mean, I, I guess I can call a physicist and say, how does this work? Uh, we've done this, but like, no, the, we designed this stuff in-house. So the, the experts of this technology is sitting within the room. So all the experts of this refinery... Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of, you're on the edge where there's not an apparatus of monitoring, you know, a lot more established domains, you know, you, you would have logging and, you know, a bunch of testing equipment to sort of perhaps adjacent or built in for all these steps. I mean, I wish there was like a stack overflow that I could have searched. (laughs) Like, (laughs) cool. I mean, it really, it actually really reminds me of, um, in coding or even in just writing when you're, so you're so focused on the goal that um, you can repeatedly read over errors. You know, you just you you feel like you've read something line by line, but the but you've you've elided like what's wrong with it every single time, just because it's not and, it's not an error. And I, I find that that analogy interesting because you can read it over and over again, but in your head you you think that that's how it's working. But if yeah. you don't work out the actual, you know, the the line of code for how it's written. Then you'll yeah. never. Was there an aspect of pacing to this? Like, you know, you're under this time pressure, but also the kind of thing you're trying to solve, you know, you need to go very slow and methodically. It was important for me to remind the team that, yes, this is a, a, a very aggressive schedule and we have no margin in this, right? Um, but at the same time, we need to solve this. Otherwise, if it doesn't work, it's pointless. You know, I had to remind the team and myself, right, at that time too, hey, let's slow down. Take some time. It's okay for us to troubleshoot this and spend, you know, X amount of days. It's fine. Let's just let's just do it and get it right. So, what do you think you learn from this experience? What is, what is your takeaway? I think the biggest takeaway for me was to not take things for granted, um, not not just glaze over something that you believe is true if you haven't validated it. Right, um, making sure that all the things that you thought were the cause are actually been checked and validated, as opposed to just assuming. Uh, that they are working and to not not fall under this time pressure and kind of glaze by the work um and 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 not glaze not not take those simple things for granted so even if you are under heavy time pressure to take a minute and pause slow down it's okay to do that and really assess the situation and really validate all these potential failures to get to that solution i think that that was the biggest takeaway for us is Let's slow down. It's okay to slow down, regardless of how fast we're moving. It's fine. Has it come up again? Has that been applicable in your work sense? Yeah, I mean, we've <laughs> we kind of disseminated this forward into our our, our kind of uh, operational flow and, and mantra of <laughs> for the integration and test team. It's like a thing that teams never gonna forget about a, a time they had to get through. Yeah, yeah. It so much so that every every test now <laughs> starts with that. Like, let's just make sure. <laughs> Every single part of the ground support equipment all the way up to literally the point at which the spacecraft touches this ground support equipment is checked. Yeah. Uh, 
it, yeah. it is ingrained in their minds and that, i think it's a great lesson to to have yeah there's yeah there's certainly an aspect of like we're sending this all into space every last chord is as important as anything else <laughs> right what can we expect like what's coming what's next for astroforge and what should we be looking forward to yeah the next major milestone that we have is our our, our first deep space launch so um we are the target launch date is october of this year um and it is a prospecting mission, so we're going to send a spacecraft out there um, to take a picture of the asteroid so we can study its surface, make sure it's the, the right type, um, and potentially uh, and look for potential landing sites um, for future missions after that. Um, you know, if we succeed, we'll be the first commercial company to ever go out to deep space. That's a feat in itself that, that, that is just a major milestone for, for humanity right like it's now taking it out of the government hands and now commercializing it. it's very very similar to what spacex said with the, the rocket company or with with its rockets right uh, we're applying that same mentality to astroforge let's commercialize what the governments have done make it cheaper uh make it more accessible um and and we're very excited for that we're working <laughs> we're working extremely hard uh to get that launched in october so um keep a lookout for that yeah, it's going to be great. It's, it's extremely exciting, but it's also just fascinating to think through how things like the cord are going to go into that process. You know, it, it'll spring fully formed and, and go into deep space, but the details oh, yeah. along the way are... are yeah, there'll be a lot more problems to talk about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. sure. <laughs> Love to think back up. Well, thanks a lot, Jose. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. It was, it was kind of fascinating. I think we learned a lot from what for you sharing your story. Amazing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully uh, people learn uh, a thing or two about slowing down at, <laughs> even though you're, you're, you're supposed to move quickly. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks for watching this episode of High Bit. I'm Brett Gibson, managing partner of Initialize Capital. Our next guest is Ethan Feldman, co-founder and CTO of Talos, a startup that provides the infrastructure and tools to trade digital assets for a variety of Wall Street institutions. What we wanted to do is bring that same level of institutional reliability and quality of trading systems into crypto. 30 years of electronification in the finance industry, we're trying to go through in five years. There are so many interesting failure scenarios here, um, and you have to get all of them right for this to work correctly. It's a constant struggle. There's no easy answer here, but it's critical to figure out. Now, long term, all assets become digital assets. So it's all the under the iceberg stuff that differentiates a trading system like ours. HiBit is produced by Initialized Capital. Our videographer and editor is Jordan Burns. Candy Chang is our showrunner. And I'm your host, Brett Gibson. Thanks for listening.